Welcome to Bennett's Keep. I'm Daniel. Well, I missed a week. <laughs> Got a little busy with a few other things, but I was uh, didn't put out a podcast last week. I had been on a, a roll, too, because, you know, for a while I didn't put any out or was pretty uh, all over the place. And then I was kind of getting one every week and getting pretty excited. But uh, anyways, missed a week. So I did have a note that I wanted to talk about last week. I think at this point in the game development phase of my uh, life, we'll call it, uh, I don't know if I keep adding little little bits and pieces because I just don't want to finish and do the hard work. But I, uh, I was thinking about the idea of how it would be nice if a magic user, or I guess a cleric in, on some level, would be able to cast a spell without people knowing they're casting it. So to me... I always think of the idea that if you're casting a spell in public, we'll say, let's say, for instance, there's two guards standing there and you cast a charm person spell on one of the guards. The other one will clearly know that you are casting a spell, whether your voice shifts, the air around you changes, you're speaking a strange tongue. You know, you they know you're casting a spell. You can't cast a spell without somebody knowing you're casting a spell. I'm not so dead set on the idea of spells needing uh, somatic or in certainly not material components, because when I read Vance, especially the the first Dying, Dying Earth book, we see people cast spells literally just with a word. So I don't know that I'm so set on that. And I'm trying to kind of nail down exactly what I want to do. As as you probably know, if you follow anything I do, I like Vance seeing spellcasting. So I like the idea that spells are kind of forced into your brain and then you let them out by uttering the last few phrases or whatever of the spell like this. Again, I'm not sure if I need or care to have the spells it require other things like material components. That may be another level of it. I am going to try to keep it. Okay, so <laughs> sideways here. My plan was to keep it somewhat neutral. But then there's been a bit of a discussion, which which is great, about the idea of do we want more flavor in our games? You know, I just did a a video for the new Tales of Argosa. You know, the the creator reached out to me and said, can you do a video about my product? And I did it and you can check it out and it's really cool. Well, (laughs) I think the video is cool, but the product's really cool. And one thing I really liked about it, what stuck out to me was that while it does have some mechanics I've seen before, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, if you've played D&D and you spent, you know, half an hour reading through, maybe an hour reading through the book, you'd have a feeling of how to play. And it's got that familiar feel. But at the same time, it has a pretty distinct setting. And it's not that you couldn't strip the setting away, but when you look at the way the spells are and you look at the wandering monster tables and that kind of stuff, you definitely get a feel for how the game, the the creator, Steven, wants, well, wants, wants to create a game, I guess, or has created a game, as opposed to being generic fantasy, as sometimes people uh, you know, note D&D as being. So that's kind of where I'm at on the fence here. Part of me was thinking, well, make it as generic as possible because I don't necessarily want to tell people how they should play this world or whatever. But the more I get closer to like putting actual, I was going to say pen to paper, but fingers to keyboard and start fleshing out the actual game now that the mechanics are there, I, I do think to myself, do I want to have a bit more flavor? I'm pretty sure that the answer to that is yes. For instance, I'm not going to have clerics in my game. I'm going to have Servants of Hastor, which is the only god in my my current campaign. And since I'm basing this around my gaming table and how we play, that's what the game's going to be. I think I'll have kind of the way Swords and Wizardry does it. I'll have like a little box that'll say, if you want to have 
a different, you know, you don't like Castor as the main god. You could make up any god, but this is the idea. So anyways, that that's kind of, I kind of went sideways there before I get to the thing I'm going to get to, which is, so I do think I want to have some flavor. So I think I do want to nail down a little bit more some specifics of how things work. And one thing that I'm thinking about is the idea of, can we cast spells without people knowing you're casting? Now, I think the idea that you can just do it is too powerful because it's a risk thing, right? If, if, if magic users could just cast spells and nobody knew they were casting, I think that if you if you kind of spread that out into the world, you'd have a lot more crazy stuff going on with magic users doing stuff and you'd end up with like magic users banned and this and that. So since I don't want to create that much depth, <laughs> uh, I don't want that to be automatic. But I was thinking to myself, there is a simple way to do this, which is simply if you are kind of mumbling your spell, that is you're not, shouting it out proudly, I'm shouting the spell and casting it right now, then perhaps it's easier for the person who is resisting the spell to basically make their saving throw. And I thought the simplest way to do that was, if just in case you're unfamiliar, I'll quickly go over it. The way I do saving throws in my game is they're not based on the character per se, they're based on the spell. And each spell has a saved number based on the stature or the, not, I don't want to say the level because that gets confusing. I think stature is the word I'm going to use. You've got normal types, you have heroic types, and you have superheroic types. So for instance, if you were to cast, I think, charm person on a normal type, they need to roll a 10 on 2d6 to save, whereas a hero type only needs an 8. Though That might not be the exact numbers, but you get the idea. So what I'm thinking is, and then this is a simple one, just again, feedback if you want to give it, is I'm thinking that Basically, if you cast the spell secretly, like under your breath, that the person will effectively have be able to save it the higher level. It could even be so far as to say that if you cast it like subtly, where maybe there's a chance somebody could hear you, but it's unlikely, perhaps on like a roll of one or two, somebody hears you or something like that on a D6, then they save one category higher, one stature higher, if you will. And if you cast it really mumbly, they save two. So if you have a normal type and you're trying to cast, like let's say you walk up to the king in a crowded hall and the king's a normal type because he's just a regular person. He wasn't an adventurer. And you want to try to cast charm person on them. Normally, if you just did it, right, everybody around would know you were doing it and they'd have to roll a 10 or better. But obviously you'd have a charmed king and everybody would know it. If you did it subtly, then maybe the people around would have a chance of hearing you and then they'd only need an eight. But if you wanted to do it completely silently with no chance of being observed, then they would actually save as a superheroic type, which I believe is a six. So it'd be much harder to get the spell off on somebody like that, but you could do it secretly. I don't know if the different levels of it is too much of a fiddly thing. And I'll also add, there's only three levels, right? So if somebody is, let's say, heroic, you could never cast a spell upon them completely quietly because there's not two levels for it to go, right? It would just be not possible to do that. So that gives a little bit of buffer so people aren't just walking up to liches and whatever, or high-level characters and charming them. And yeah, I think that uh, I think that's kind of interesting. So my initial thought is just, it just is one level harder to, to save, and it's just, you know, GM and player and table makes a decision whether or not it's possible. In other words, King with everybody gathering, watching, probably not possible to do it quietly, even with the the bump. But crowded bar, 
charming somebody, you know, at a, uh, you know, when there's other people around, you probably could get away with it. They'll just get a slightly better safe. So I don't know. Anyways, I guess the question is, do you think the idea of being able to cast a more subtle spell is good, a good idea, if it's something I should bother even putting in there, and if you like any of these combinations or if you have a, a better idea. I don't want to modify it by numbers, so I don't want to say, like, they get a plus two to their save because I'm trying to not do that. I like to have fixed numbers, and I like to use the statures, but maybe that is the best solution. Who knows? Be good to hear from people. Speaking of that, I do have a couple calls. One of them is answering my, at least one of them, is answering my bloodied question that I asked the last time. It's from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. So let's see what Jason has to say. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Listen to Getting Bloodied in Melee. I paused before the calls. As far as normal man, I like the idea the defender defends better. Um, that what you came up with at the end of that discussion. So that's kind of where I, uh, you know, where I'm at there. As far as the other, the bloody thing, you know, the problem is somebody either hitting themselves or having their buddy hit them to pump them up to attack, right? Um, and I know that's really gamey, but you're writing it in rules, so you don't want to leave big loopholes in your rules, right? Uh, so maybe damage done by opponents, you, you know, as opposed to by people on your own side. Um, and I don't think I'd allow it in fantasy combat, although in fantasy combat, you're not, you're not changing what they're attacking as. So, uh, first level character, you, you know, normal man, whatever, magic user, you, you couldn't just hit a magic user, knock them, knock them down below half, and then now they can all of a sudden fight as a hero or something, right? So, we're not allowing that. So, I, I don't know. It, it, it's kind of gamey. I don't know. I think I'd only allow it for certain things. I don't think I'd allow it for everybody. I, I think it would be just certain creature types and maybe certain characters could do that personally. But, you know, it's your game, definitely. And, and, and I'm not frowning on however you use it. But, but I think I would kind of limit how that's used personally as opposed to a universal mechanic. All right, so that was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Thanks, Jason. So a couple little parts there just because you didn't catch the last episode. The normal man part that he's talking about is we were talking about the idea of people that aren't proficient in weapons, like how to handle that. Because we do find in some systems where, right, you know, it's like what I was talking about was that a normal person, right, if there's no limit on it, a normal person could pick up a sword and attack, but a magic user couldn't because of the way I handle that, right? Magic users and such that aren't proficient with swords, they fight as one, quote, man less if they're using a, a weapon that is, you know, they're not proficient in. I'm still working out that idea so that, yeah, you're right. I think it it's a... The what I kind of like spitballed at the end might be the best thing. I got to go back and actually re-listen to myself and write it up as a rule to actually, I'll come back on, I totally forgot uh, to do that and just like read it out of what I got so it's a little cleaner because I, I was kind of like just making it up as I was going along, which seems like the story of my life. Second part, I just want to clarify. So uh, the the bloody mechanic, just in case you missed the thing and just to clarify for Jason too, well, I kind of went back and forth about whether I'd use it in fantasy combat. And I think what Jason's saying is, 100% accurate. I don't I don't think that it's worth using in fantasy. It just it seems like it wouldn't matter and it's just adding more complication. So the place I would use it is only in the detailed combat or what's called man to man in chainmail and that combat it uses hit points. And the way it would work is when you are below half your hit points, you gain I can't remember what it is now. It's I was basing it off the werewolf. I think you 
fight it triple for X number of rounds. But then from that point on, you fight as half until you're healed, basically. So while it is true, what Jason's saying is you could have a friend just beat you up until you go down there. You're only going to fight as triple for a handful of rounds. And then the way healing works in my system is that there's only really two ways to heal. You've got natural healing, which is one week of absolute complete rest in a safe spot. Or you have a cleric casting a heal spell on you, which takes both you and them out of the the game for 24 hours. You're basically helpless for 24 hours. So I don't think it would be something that would be gamed like that. I don't know. I mean, I can't I can't imagine somebody gaming it, but I, I do appreciate that thought because I do know that that is a thing, right? And you see people talk about this in different games, like, oh, you need to make sure you say it a certain way because otherwise players will game it. But I feel like that would be a silly move. I guess the only time I could see somebody doing that would be is if you knew, which would be meta, I guess, that this was the last fight of a big confrontation and then you were going to be done like in a, in a one shot or something, then maybe you'd do that. But I think in a campaign, it would be silly to weaken your character to 50%, you know, until they heal it, it just so you could get a bonus in a, in one fight. And again, if you did do that, I think that'd be an interesting choice, right? Everybody else is down. You're the, you're this last standing fighter. You're fighting this creature that might take you out now because it's dropped you to half hit points or close. So you just decide to stab yourself in the leg with a dagger. So you could have this burst of adrenaline for a couple of rounds it's a gamble. If you kill the creature, then maybe you walk all walk out alive. If you don't kill the creature within those couple of rounds, you are most certainly going to die. So it's really cool. I mean, I actually, I don't, I don't actually mind the using it, but again, I haven't play tested it yet. I'm just kind of bouncing it around some of these like little ideas of how things might work. And my, many of them might end up being kind of at the end of the book as like ideas that you can use almost like an advanced combat, which might be the case with the spell thing I mentioned as well. So yeah, thanks so much for replying. I, I think you are <laughs> smart and, and wise, we'll say wise, to point out that yes, it could be abused if not written a certain way. And the fantasy eh, doesn't really, since it can't turn you into a different type, all it's doing is increasing your damage, which just makes fantasy maybe, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it would actually really do anything. It, maybe in some rare cases it would do something, but in most cases it would just be an extra rule that would just make things cumbersome that would never be used or come into play. So thanks so much for that call. And let's see, we have a call from Riley. This is actually a response to my Freebooter podcast, which is the podcast I do for the patrons. But I think it's worth playing here because uh, I can tell you what they're talking about. And I think it's an interesting conversation. Hey, Daniel, Riley here. I just listened to your latest Freebooters podcast. Sounds like a really cool zine. And yeah, getting handmade zines in the mail is just awesome. I get something like that from a, a creator here in Australia. That's printed and stapled by by a guy, but even that has professional art. And yeah, there's lots of stuff on uh, on ZineQuest, which is incredibly well produced. You know, professional art, writing, editing, plus a really high quality product at the end, which is great, but not really the do-it-yourself thing, um, which is a bit of a shame, as you said. I wonder, I don't think it'd be too hard to set up a bit of initiative to get something happening there. I wonder if people would be interested in doing something like the Gygax 75, but take a month on each step and produce like a double-sided print. Get a few people to handle the printing and shipping for overseas people potentially, or just do it all digitally. Um, I think that'd be really cool. Anyway, thanks for the shows. Great stuff coming out of the Patreon. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Riley. So if I didn't say it already, Riley has the Diegetic Advancement Podcast. 
So just to summarize what I was talking about on Freebooter, I talk about, well, I talk about a bunch of different things, but primarily I talk about fiction and adventures and things like that, zines that I'm looking at, kind of things I've run, that kind of thing. Anyways, this was a set of zines that was from, I guess around 2014, if I'm remembering right, and they were actually something that was mailed to you. Now, they were mailed to a friend of mine. I never participated in this. And once a month or whatever it is, you would get this like, you know, letter size, two sides, uh, you know, front, back, adventure kind of zine. It's a, it was mostly adventures and mailed to you. And it was a dollar. And what I was kind of lamenting on some level is that that would, that seems so cool. Like as much as all these like deluxe, awesome four color zines that we're getting on zine quest are amazing. And all these quick access to things like PDFs is cool. The idea of like once a month getting something in the mail is kind of neat, right? Especially if that thing you get in the mail is just very, uh, you know, it, it's, I don't know what the word, it's like, it's a piece of paper, right? It's not going to last forever. And it's a thing that you have. These are the things that now when people dig through their old collections from the 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever, they've got these zines and these one-offs and stuff. And it's really cool. And I wonder if on some level we don't have that. We're not going to have that, right, in 10 years because everything is going to be a PDF or these like really deluxe things. So you're not going to have those like one or two people that keep that folded over zine with hand drawn with a magic marker kind of vibe. So anyways, I was just talking about that. And then what Riley was saying is actually true. I mean, I wonder it wouldn't probably take that much to get something like that organized and to use something like to, to surround it, like something, a joint project. It, it reminds me a little bit, I think what they're saying of something I'm just going to, just because you're new here and I've mentioned it before, I'm a photographer in, in my real life. But anyways, I, uh, what we used to do years ago was we would, a bunch of us used to do what we call print swap. So each of us would make a print of, a, of an image that we really liked. And then we would get together and we would randomly like choose, you know, who gets to what pictures or whatever. And if you had one from somebody, you couldn't get it twice in a row. So you'd pick again if you got that person again. And that way we were all basically sharing each other's images because, you know, you make all these photos, especially if you're a commercial photographer that get put in magazines or whatever. But, you know, your personal work, it's like you print it or whatever, and you can hang it on your own wall. I mean, some people do, but it's kind of fun to hang your friend's work on your wall. I always thought that was really fun to do those print swap. And I could totally see doing something like this with maybe a half a dozen or a dozen people and say, hey, everybody make a two page thing and mail it. <laughs> now, am I starting one of these like uh, <laughs> by mail pyramid, pyramid schemes? But, you know, everybody who's part of it, do your thing for the month and then mail it to the, the people that are uh, that are interested. But, you know, and yes, you could do it digitally, but I think the idea of actually doing it printed is what I was really, uh, really thinking about. So if we could work that out, that'd be kind of fun. You know, I wouldn't mind sending off, uh, you know, 12 letters a month or six letters a month to people and for, to, to then in turn receive 12 or six or however many people are doing it, letters a month, each with kind of something interesting and different in it. And, you know, there's no pressure. It's all whatever it is. You create what you want. Maybe it's a drawing you did. Maybe it's a, a brief for an adventure. Maybe it's a poem, who knows? Just, you know, don't send me too many love poems. I, I you know, I get a lot of those already. <laughs> Anyways, really good hearing from you, Riley. And we have a call from Goblin's Henchman. Hi, Daniel. Goblin's Henchman here. So I was just recently listening to your Medusa episode podcast. And um, at one point you touch on this idea about random tables. And um, Jason was talking a little bit about, you know, people getting, you know, the DM maybe getting too into the game himself and to the exclusion of players. And, and you talked about this idea of getting the players to help roll random 
parts of the random tables. And this this is something I could have, have fully embraced the idea. I think it's a really, really good idea. Um, I've I've done a, written a few things which are wholly procedural. So a couple of procedural adventures like uh, well, Carapace and uh, In the Heart of Oz. But but most of these are also basically a, a bolts on or rather expansions of things like my In the Heart of the Unknown or In the Heart of the Sea, which are basically tools for procedurally generating um, terrain and and adventures in, in in basically a hex crawl and also the a, a, a C, a C version of a hex crawl. But the the premise here is that there's kind of two sets of these are hex flower adventures um, driven adventures and the, the, the idea here is that there's some things that uh, matter that the players know perhaps and there's some things that don't matter that the players know for example um, in in the heart of the unknown I would get the players to roll weather and terrain because in the end the players are going to see that they're going to know it's raining um, they're going to know <laughs> Uh, they're going to know they're they're coming into hills. It's not it's not a secret, right? Um, and the, the the good thing about that, when you're running a wholly procedural kind of thing, is that that frees the DM to roll the if you like important things, the things as you talked about, like reaction rolls, that that really sort of are more pivotal to what how the encounter plays out that the players wouldn't know about. So, in in my particular case, I would you know roll the um, what what the you know what the monster is or if there's an encounter, um, and then again, for example, in my my procedural adventure carapace, there are things like if you enter a room, what's 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 the room like? How big is it? Uh, it does it have any special features like stalactites? All these things um, give first of all give something the players do because you know I've, I've I've listened to podcasts where people talk about things like what is it? Um, Guns of Yin, and basically there's a, there's there's a GM DM rolls up the stuff behind the scenes, and there's like a ten minute gap while the players are sort of you know looking at each other, wondering what's next. But if you can outsource that, you get you get a couple of bonuses. One is that you know frees up the DM to to make up the figure out what's going on, but also that that great synergy where you know the players start talking about oh well there's uh, some columns and maybe those are you know related to the um, you know x y and z and then the dm could say pick up on that and, and run with it so you get that extra level of um feedback which you know can in inspire you um anyway interesting stuff um cheers thanks so much uh, as i said that was goblins henchmen they have a great blog and podcast so i will put links to all that and also links to jason's podcast and riley's in the show notes below it's funny i didn't think to about those adventures because I have them all. Fantastic. I am a huge fan of the Hexflower and I do love that. I remember seeing that and as soon as you said it, I thought, oh yeah, that's right. There's basically a couple of different Hexflowers and one is for the players roll on. And that's great, right? You're letting the players do the thing while you're doing the thing and then together you're kind of building it together. So I really love that. I love the idea that, right, it'll act as the player's bounce off of the 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 bounce ideas off of you and you off of them as the GM but also it uh I love having the players roll especially when it's like oh man we don't want it to be a forest or we don't want it to rain and then they're rolling right so it's <laughs> I always love that because then there's that great success ah it's not raining anymore or, oh bummer and I just think that can build like another layer of just kind of fun at the table so yeah I'm all for it and those are some great adventures I will put 
links to all that in the show notes. Uh, Carapace is kind of you going into uh, like, well, I guess it's like an anthill. I would be the best way to describe it. And um, of course, Oz is Wizard of Oz. That was really fun. Actually, if you go back through Goblin's Henchman's uh, podcast, I'm pretty sure it was the podcast where they were talking about the Wizard of Oz and kind of how they were building this. And it's really neat because it's got a lot of stuff in there that I didn't really know much about. <laughs> so very, very cool. And uh, you know what's interesting about that too is going sideways on this is that I was thinking to myself, as you mentioned something like Gardens of Yin, I, that's exactly the problem I've had with stuff like that. I think they're very cool. Uh, there's others. Uh, but exactly, I'm thinking at the table, I wouldn't want to sit there and do this in front of, with the players there. So how would I do that, right? Maybe get them to roll. And you can be like, hey, roll a D6 and then say something. But you, but the the way that these adventures um, are set up that Goblin Central has talked about is there's actually separate, at least the versions I have, because I did the Kickstarter, a couple of them. There's like actually... Um, like hexes that you could actually put out there and show the players so they could actually just roll it themselves. You don't have to, okay, Bob, roll a D6, Jane, roll a D5. They can just roll. Why are they rolling D5? Am I playing DCC? Anyways, they can just roll it and tell you. They don't have to, like, they can use the hex flower themselves, which, again, is kind of fun. Anyways, thanks so much for calling. It's always great to hear from everyone. Let me know what you think about anything that has to do with RPGs, I guess. Not just saying, I mean, anything in life, I guess, if it's pretty. Speaking of that, kind of randomly, I've been listening to, well, I'm always listening to, but recently the uh, minion, Rob, over at Confessions from a Wee Tim or Spushi, there's been this kind of like bit of conversation about deities and gods and stuff in the gaming. And I think it's just been a really interesting uh, conversation. So if you, have, if you haven't caught that, uh, go check that out. It's like the last couple episodes. I'll see if I can put a link. I'll at least put a link to the podcast. And you can just roll back. And look, read, listen to the last few episodes. I thought there was some really good uh, thoughts and insight and just really opened the imagination uh, in that uh, series of podcasts. I'm trying to be more like Riley. If you don't listen to Riley every time he mentions a bunch of people, I listen to so many podcasts. I'm sorry I don't shut more people out. I should probably make a, a habit of doing that. But lots of great stuff out there. Oh, you know what, too? If you This is completely sideways because I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this podcast aren't necessarily interested in this. But I will say it anyways because I was interested Dire Den has been doing a series on, I guess they went and like listened to the interviews with the people, um, oh God, I can't remember, the designers of the new edition of D&D. And also they've been looking at the various playtest documents and putting together a kind of what they project is going to be as close as possible, the, the new version of D&D in 2024. It's really interesting to see what they did there. I can't say that it seems super appealing to me, but it's interesting to see what they're doing, right? How they've taken... What was a good system? I thought 5e was a good system and where it's moving, right? This is part of what I called into, I believe it was Jason's podcast a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, where I, I, I made the claim and I believe that these games move, I'm going to say forward, even though, you know, forward implies better, but, you know, they move to the next edition or whatever, not solely based on what some game designer sitting around thinks that should happen, but rather on how people play. You know, they, they look, especially a big company, looks at what people are doing with their product and they want to sell more of the product. So they're going to do stuff that works for that. So when we look at where they're going with this new edition, I can totally see why and they're going in that direction. And I can see why I kind of stepped away from playing that edition because it just wasn't for me. I wonder how that will affect things like Pathfinder 2, which I know a lot of people 
kind of slid over into after the OGL thing. And, you know, while everybody outwardly is saying Watsy's terrible and we'll never go back, I've heard a lot of people that are playing Pathfinder that are like, oh, this actually <laughs> isn't necessarily what I wanted. And some people that really like it. So it's really interesting. Again, the games are going to change and we will either like what they do with it or we can play the versions that we have. I think that having more gaming in out there is better than less, even though I sometimes joke that they should have basically stopped after the Three Little Brown books. Uh, you know, I'm glad they didn't because <laughs> I probably would have never discovered it. Anyways, that's me going on a sideways jaunt through uh, things I've been watching lately. I just think it's interesting. You know, I'm not sure. Oh, you know what else I did? This is interesting. I went to Ollie's. So I don't know. There was a, oh, no, terrible like news controversy that Ollie's, which is, if you don't know Ollie's, which I did not know Ollie's, is kind of a discount store. Like they're, they they buy like overstock kind of. I think, I think that's their jam. You can imagine, <laughs> this is going to be a very specific reference. If you're from Massachusetts, <laughs> they're kind of like building 19. But anyways, if anybody knows what Building 19 is, let me know. But anyways, the, uh, the you know, so I guess they were, you know, in the whole Hasbro is going out of business trend of YouTubers, they had reported that uh, some of these things that they had made for 5e or whatever uh, were ending up at Ollie's. One of those things was a, a board game, a Dragonlance board game. And it was the, like retail price was like $100 or something. And at Ollie's, it was like $10. So I thought, I know there's an Ollie's near me. It was not super close, but I said, if I ever get over there, I'm going to see if they have it. And I went to Ollie's and what I found was some really cool action figures. I did not buy any of the original D&D cartoon characters. They were more collectibles, I guess. They were probably, uh, I don't know, six or eight inches tall. They did not have Sheila, though, which immediately turned me off because, of course, that's the only one I really want. So um, so luckily I did not buy anything there. Uh, but I did get the game. So I got it for 10 bucks and I'm going to look at it. It comes with five miniatures. I mean, five miniatures for 10 bucks is not bad. Uh, the game itself looks interesting. I haven't actually looked through it. Maybe I'll talk about it at some point, but I figure for 10 bucks, can't go wrong with that. There's, you know, map board pieces and tokens and all the other stuff that we can use for other things. So at the very least, as Merc the Meek says, you can use these games for other stuff. So if you happen to be near Anolis and uh, they have any left, then uh, grab one. Uh, also, uh, my friend Nikki picked up a game that was <laughs> based on Kenny G. So, yeah, there's a lot of interesting games out there. I wonder, Jason, this one's for Jason, if you're hanging out this long, do you have the Kenny G keeping it sexy game? Because it looks pretty good. <laughs> All right, now I've really lost it. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>